Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 will be in 1 to 12 this morning. Matthew 19, 1 to 12. Matthew 19, 1 to 12. Let's read what the word of the Lord says to us here. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And to send her away. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case uh, of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been who have themselves who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it receive it. You ever approach the Bible half afraid of what you're going to read? Perhaps it's some sin in particular that you're struggling with, and as you open the text of Scripture, you wince a little bit out of some sense of fear that maybe you're about to be clobbered by the text of Scripture. Or perhaps you're the other way. Have you ever read the Bible where you have started to think, I'm not sure this really applies to me at all. I don't think it's me he's got his sights set on here. And maybe in those passages, you just sort of skim past them. Just try to get past that into the next thing that actually does apply to you. Because this is obviously addressing a person or a group of people that is not you. But when it comes to the topic of divorce, it's particularly difficult. Especially to preach. You can sense when we read that text, it's, it, it, it's a bit difficult to work through and to grasp what Jesus is really talking about. And when we come to the topic of divorce, it might not be a topic where we're not preaching straight through the book of Matthew that we would really ever address. But the text has forced us to come to this this morning. When we approach this topic, we always risk alienating one of two groups of people within the church family. The first are those that have personally gone through divorce in their past. And in a world where it is so common to have divorce, and even a very common thing within the church, unfortunately, 
it is potentially possible and, and likely that in any congregation you are looking at people, in many of which have been through a divorce. And almost all of us in this congregation have experienced divorce in one way or another. Whether we know somebody or perhaps it was our parents or somebody that we're intimately connected to. One thing we could potentially do in a sermon like this is just bring down the hammer. And leave the person feeling as though there is no place in the kingdom of God for you. That would be one ditch on one side of the road. The other ditch on the other side of the road would, to, would be to just water down everything that Jesus says. So that we could remove divorce from the conversation and really make sin no big deal. That would also be to fall into another ditch. We want to walk down the middle of the road and hold those two things in tension. My goal this morning is to do exactly that. If you have a divorce in your past, I want you to hear me say beforehand, if you end up hearing inside your head that there's no place in the kingdom of God for you, there's no place in Christ's kingdom for you, that's not me saying that. That voice inside your head that's between your own ears is Satan's voice. That's not Jesus' voice either. If you end up hearing, though, that you have no responsibility, perhaps that there's no guilt that needs to be had, that may also be Satan's voice as well. You need to fight to keep your heart in the right place this morning. Hold those two things in tension to really analyze your motivations and your past. Where there is sin that you haven't dealt with, confess it, turn from it, and trust that the blood of Christ is enough to cover it and move on. The second group that we risk alienating when we talk about marriage is single people in the congregation. You might think, well, this doesn't apply to me because either I am not married, I have no potential of being married, or this person that they're talking to is some future me down the road, and whenever I get to the point where there is a possibility of marriage, well, then I may go back and listen to this podcast, or I may go somewhere in the future and, count and ask for counsel on what marriage really looks like in some sort of premarital counseling type situation. I think it's a mistake for you to just gloss over this thinking that it doesn't apply to you for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus is actually going to turn His attention to you at the end of this passage. And He's going to address you specifically. The disciples actually think that your station in life is the only logical conclusion from what Jesus is preaching. For that matter, to all of us, whether you are currently married formally or currently divorced or single, this passage is essential because, believe it or not, Jesus' point here is going to transcend marriage altogether to understanding better the kingdom of God itself. What is at stake in the kingdom of God? What are we really talking about here when we say that we are citizens of the kingdom of God? But really, for all of us, we have to get past this notion that the sermon has to apply to me directly in order for it to be beneficial. It has to be right on my current station in life for it to be relevant to me. We have just gone through a sermon series in a breakaway from Matthew. We've just gone through Matthew chapter 18 where we have talked about the church and the nature of the church. And we've seen that we are responsible for the person sitting next to us. 
We're responsible for everyone in this room. We're responsible for members of our church that are right now watching online. We're responsible for their souls. We're responsible for knowing the sin struggles that they're going through. We're responsible for helping them shoulder the burdens of life as they walk through the Christian life. We're responsible to hold each other accountable to the Word of God and remind each other of the Gospel week in and week out. And so if a sermon concerns my neighbor, it concerns me. We've entered into our last section in the book of Matthew. It's going to be a rather lengthy section, but it's the last section. And we know that because of the first two verses in this passage. Matthew 19, 1 and 2, where Matthew transitions us to the next section by transitioning Jesus to the next place. You can see he has moved from the area of the Galilean region up north in the land of Israel all the way down south to the region of Judea in which Jerusalem is. This is his last stop on the tour, so to speak. He is not going or he is going to make it out alive, but ironically he's going to die first. Which sounds weird unless you know how the story ends. At the beginning of this section, there are large crowds that are following Him. He is healing them. But these large crowds that are following Him and praising His name right now will leave Him by the time He gets to the end. Largely, He's going to be hanging on a cross by Himself. The Pharisees here are seeking to Test him. We're not sure exactly what testing it really is, but it seems like they're kind of laying a trap for him. And they ask him if it is lawful for them to divorce one's wife for any cause. And we're not told exactly why this is a test, perhaps why this is a trap. We're not told exactly why. It's hard to discern. But you have to remember something that happened just a few chapters ago. You remember Herod actually divorced his wife and ended up taking his brother's wife, Herodias, into his palace. And remember, John the Baptist was preaching against that and got beheaded for that very thing. So it's possible that what the Pharisees are seeking to do here is ensnare Jesus in some way, where if He ends up preaching against divorce, then He puts Himself also against Rome and against Herod, which could leave Him on the precipice of death. We're not necessarily told, but that's, that's likely. But Jesus' response answers their question. He is going to address their question about divorce, but He does so in a very strange way. He does so, and I want you to notice this, by talking more about marriage than He does about divorce. And so the vast content of what I'm going to be talking about this morning, in spite of what you may have heard in previous sermons around this particular passage, we're going to be spending a lot more time talking about marriage than we do really divorce. What is marriage inside the kingdom of heaven? So as much as this passage is used often to teach on divorce, it's really more about how marriage serves in God's kingdom, what it really is, what its nature really is. And by understanding its nature, then we can see the ridiculousness of the question that's being posed to them. So regardless 
There are two aspects to Jesus' answer here that I want you to see. And the first is this, that our marriages should reflect God's original intention for the institution. Our marriages should reflect God's original intention for the institution. Look at what happens in verses 3 to 6. If the Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I want to go back to the beginning. Let's understand what Jesus is doing here and his answer here and how profound it really is. And to do that, I want to go back to the very beginning and let's rehearse the story that Scripture gives to us to account for the people of God. What, what are they and what was their commission? What was their purpose that God gave them to do? And I'm talking all the way back to the very, very beginning. Remember, we have the original couple that God places there in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. They are there in the garden, naked and unashamed. Sin has yet to be committed there is no rule or reign of sin in the world at that moment. The two are in the garden, happily married. They're made in the image of God. And we've talked about a number of times in here, we've talked about a number of times on Wednesday night, that to be made in the image of God, God has created them, He has given them dominion to rule and to reign, to spread His glory around the earth. So in other words, their kids, their kids' kids, all the people that would be on the earth would be in full submission to God's rule and His reign, God's will. They would worship Him uh, uh, holy and truly, in spirit and in truth, you might say. And, and, and they're to do this together. God made them a team. They're a, they're a happy couple. Eve is a helpmate to Adam. Adam is created of the dirt. Eve is made from his rib. She is his, his helpmate. The two work in perfect harmony together. We're not told for how long, but that is their goal. They start off in the Garden of Eden and to spread God's rule and His reign around the earth. However, they sinned. Sin enters the world they break God's commandment. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, God renders judgment on the world. Not only does sin enter the world, death then enters the world as a result of their sin. They are going to die. They were told that from the beginning. But there's other things that come along with that. God comes along in the garden and He separates the man, the woman, and the serpent and He gives to them a judgment on... He places a judgment on each. But this morning I want, I want you to hear what He says to the woman in Genesis 3.16. Part of the judgment that He gives to her. I want you to hear this. He says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." but He shall rule over you. Do you hear the change there that's happened? You, you hear that? As a consequence of the fall, there is now friction between the husband and the wife. Instead of marital harmony, 
It's marital strife. Rather than working together to exercise God's rule and His reign throughout the earth, the woman's desire is going to be to dominate the man and His desire is going to be to dominate her. They're going to be locked in a power struggle for the foreseeable future. And some of you may be thinking, that explains it. Yes, indeed it does. That does explain it. So here are the man and the woman locked in this battle that will seemingly last until death. So we go from Adam saying of his wife, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to now saying for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till one of us kills the other. That's the reality. That's the change. Okay, but then God doesn't just leave them. He actually crafts a people for Himself. He calls out of the sin and the darkness, He calls a people for Himself. And guess what He tells the nation of Israel there at Sinai in Exodus 19? You are to be a kingdom of priests. And what He means by that is you are to introduce the rest of the world to me. You are to be a kingdom of priests for the rest of the world. At first, remember, they have the tabernacle, and then eventually they have the temple. And what do they do is they move into the land there to judge the wicked and to drive out the wicked. And then they're to spread the kingdom of God, bringing the nations around them in glad submission to God's rule and His reign, both by judging the wicked, as we've seen, and then also introducing the world to the God that they worship by coming to the temple and bringing their sacrifice and understanding His grace and His love and praying to Him and, and worshiping Him there, right? Their mandate is also for procreation. Remember, they're supposed to have kids. Deuteronomy 6 gives us that biblical, that great biblical definition for parenting. What does parenting actually look like? To remind your children, this is why we worship the God we do. This is what He has done for us. We don't do this for no reason. Your job as a parent then is to disciple, to discipline, to bring your kids along in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So in both the way that they practice their religion in amongst the rest of the world, bringing the nations into submission to His rule and His reign, and in the way they parent at home, they're to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What are they doing? They're spreading God's rule and His reign around the world. That's what they're supposed to do. So then back to our text in Matthew. Here's a people that know about the Garden of Eden it's in their Bible. They see it. They understand its meaning. They understand what was lost in the fall. They understand what God's original purpose was for marriage. This is a people that have the temple. They worship at the temple. They understand the purpose of the temple. They understand what the temple's significance is to the Gentile nations around them. 
They understand that there are people that have been called out, that have been chosen by God, a people for His own possession. They understand that they're a kingdom of priests for the rest of the world. They understand that they're a people with a mandate, much like Adam's original mandate, to extend the rule and the reign of God to all the nations around the earth, to bring all the nations into worship of, of God. There are people that are supposed to do this through a one-flesh union with their wives. And they're questioning Jesus. So what does my wife have to do for me to divorce her? All of that explanation is so you could feel the sadness of their question. I want you to hear that. Feel the difference between Garden of Eden and the question they pose to Jesus here. Garden of Eden, man and woman, naked and unashamed, helpmates. What does she have to do for me to send her away? What's the bare minimum for divorce? Does that reflect a people before the fall or after the fall? That's after. This is a people that have made peace with sin. They're bedfellows with the strife of the relationship that came as a result of the fall. They've made peace with it. And now they seek any means necessary, any means available to them to send their wife away. Their concern is not, Jesus, how can I improve my marriage? Their concern is not, how do I live with my wife in an understanding way? Their concern is, what do I have to do to get rid of this woman? What's the minimum requirement? Can I, can I divorce her for any reason whatsoever? What are the loopholes? But Jesus isn't having it. You'll notice that both of his answers, they ask a question, he gives an answer. They give a rebuttal, he gives another answer. And you'll notice that both of his answers go all the way back to the beginning. Both of his answers have nothing to do with, hey guys, let's try to get along with your wives, let's try to stay together. No, his answers go back to the very beginning and his expectation for a disciple, his expectation for someone that would follow after him is that if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, then you understand that in marriage, God has fused two people together. And if God has put it together, who are you to separate it? What right do you have to drive a wedge in between the two things that God has fused together and pull it apart. You have no right to separate what God has joined. So then the Israelites, the Pharisees here, give a rebuttal to Jesus. And look in verse seven, verses 7 to 9. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
There's a few things to notice here, and the first is the phrasing of the question. It reveals the heart of the Pharisees behind the question. Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce. So just reading that, you might be inclined to think there's a passage in the Old Testament where Moses commanded you to divorce your wives. Or that Moses said, yeah, okay, divorce is fine, and here's how you need to do it. When you read their statement, that's how you might take that. And you'll flip through your Bible and go, where is this in the Old Testament law? They're, they're referencing Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And I want to read this to you and see if you come to the same conclusion that the Pharisees came to. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. I can't help but when I read that, think that's not quite the way that the Pharisees have characterized that passage. I'll get it. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 probably raises a lot of questions in your mind, right? I, I understand that, all right? This isn't a sermon on Deuteronomy 24. I use it as simply an illustration, okay? We'll come back to this much later. But as you can see, the heart of what Moses is teaching here in the law is that the people... Uh, uh, that, are, that are trying to get uh, divorced, he's telling them, you cannot remarry somebody that you have divorced once she has married somebody else. You're not to take her in as your wife. Now, suffice it to say, for all the questions that are bouncing around in your mind about Deuteronomy 24, Jesus puts a nice little bow on it and says, all of that's because of your hardness of heart that Moses is, is telling you this. is because you're wicked sinners. That's the reason that Moses is telling you this. So their rebuttal to Jesus is, if Moses commanded us to write a certificate of divorce, why would he have done that if, as you're saying, divorce isn't permissible? Do you see the connection that they're making? Jesus is saying divorce is not permissible. And they're saying, well, Moses clearly allowed it. He talks about some completely other thing here, but he does imply that there could be a certificate of divorce written, so therefore, it must be possible for us to divorce our wives. Now, can we divorce them for any reason? That's what we're asking. Do you see the logical chain that they're connecting here? This is where Jesus does something that I think is very important for us to understand about marriage, particularly as the people of God. He reminds them of the consequences of the fall. He says, that's because of your hardness of heart However, from the beginning, it wasn't that way. And then he goes on to lay out the only circumstance for which divorce is permissible, and that is sexual immorality. On any other ground, to marry another, you are committing adultery. But I want you to see something here. Jesus isn't merely criticizing divorce. Obviously, he is doing that. But it's not the only thing that he's doing. 
He is elevating the original intention for marriage. Both of his answers go back to the very beginning. Pre-fall marriage. This is what it looked like. That is God's original intention for marriage. One man, one woman, for a lifetime. That's his original intention. The ideals of the Garden of Eden, in other words, is what we as married couples or as people that are married are striving for if you are married. That is the goal. Notice, he doesn't go to the Song of Solomon. He doesn't talk about David's marriages. He does not talk about anybody else's marriage. But Adam and Eve. Straight back to the garden. But you have to remember what he criticizes in them, in the Pharisees, for asking the question, is their own hardness of heart. Now, why is that important? Because what is Christ bringing to the, to the foray? What is he bringing in the kingdom that he's issuing? But he is promising to fulfill what was promised in the prophets in Jeremiah and Ezekiel to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He's putting in them a spirit his own spirit that seeks to obey God. And their obedience is not to the law, but to the highest intentions for which God originally designed marriage to begin with. That's why He goes back to the Garden of Eden. The spirit that God is going to give them, the new hearts that, the, that God is going to give them, will see their intentions for marriage going all the way back before the fall, not afterwards. But herein lies the difficulty for you and me because almost every couple that I will have sit in my office, particularly young couples about to get married that are going through premarital counseling, will have exceptions in their mind to the vows that they're about to make. Sometimes we even look at verse 9. We see that, except, and we put it in all caps and bold and underline, and we say, ha, Jesus gave me an escape clause there. If you think that that's an escape clause, you've missed all of what Jesus is saying. You understand what he's driving at. And we think to ourselves, I want to hear more about that escape clause. Tell me more about that. Because we as humans have a human nature. We, we love law. And we want the boundaries set for us so that we can walk as close to that boundary line as possible so that we can know that even as close as I get to that boundary line, I can walk over there and still be good with God. But the problem is no matter where the boundary line of the law is drawn, we will always find a way to move that boundary line so that it still includes us, even if it excludes everyone else including oftentimes our spouse. Look at what the Jews are doing here. They're asking how they might divorce their wives for any reason when that's clearly not the intention for marriage. Jesus is putting before them what you saw before the fall, what you saw in the Garden of Eden, that's God's intention for marriage. 
Nothing else will suffice. Strive for that. So that in the event of the exception clause, in the event that something does come into the marriage that is seemingly unforgivable, perhaps even then you can forgive over divorce. It is God, after all, who says through the prophet Malachi in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. And the one who is guilty of violence, pay attention to your conscience and do not be unfaithful. Can you say to your spouse, I will never divorce you. any reason. I will never divorce you. Think about what this says to people that are dating. Now be, be honest here. Is the person that you're dating going to strive toward this end? Is that confession, I will never divorce you, is that vow, is that covenant going to be on the front of their mind at all time. When they say, till death do us part, they mean it. Because they take the vow that they're taking at the altar very seriously. Do you think this person that you're dating is going to have that in mind? Where under no circumstances divorce an option. You can tell this might be true of them because in everywhere else in their life, they are striving toward the heart of God's commands on everything? Or are you settling? Because listen, if you settle and you see indiscretions that go overlooked, they seem minor, but there's a very good chance. Statistically, 50% chance that you're going to be in my office or you're going to be in the office of a pastor somewhere down the road looking for an escape clause. And you think, well, that sounds really difficult, honestly. To be dead honest with you, to say that at the altar, let's say, we, let's say we altered our vows just a little bit. We changed them just a little bit. And we're standing up there and the, the pastor said, repeat after me, I will never, under any circumstances, divorce you. You, you think that the bride or the groom, unprepared for this, would give like a second look to the pastor? Perhaps to the congregation? Because yeah, it sounds really blunt, and it sounds really, to be honest, really difficult. Which brings us to the second point. God sustains kingdom sacrifice. God sustains kingdom sacrifice. You're not the only one that thinks that that's difficult. Look at what the disciples say to Jesus in verse 10. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> so the disciples are picking up on the weight of marriage that Jesus has just put out there for all the people listening. They're picking up on the weight of the vow of marriage in the kingdom of God. And they've noticed 
how Jesus has gone back to pre-fall conditions. We don't live in pre-fall conditions. They're in post-fall conditions, and they're looking back and they're going, are you sure? Because if I, if I need to be like Adam before the fall in order to really hold this vow of marriage, well, uh, if that's the, the case, then it's probably better just to not get married. If what it takes to be your disciple and to truly follow after you is to do that, then it's less risky for me to just not be married. And honestly, which of us in this room are willing to say that we're perfectly comfortable making a vow with another sinner, locking ourselves in till death with absolutely no escape clause? They get the level of commitment that Jesus is calling for here. And if that's what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven, wouldn't it be easier to just skip marriage to begin with? To which Jesus responds in verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So when we hear this word eunuch, well, first Jesus says not, not everyone can receive this saying. I think what he's talking about there is what the disciples just said. I think he's telling them not everyone can do what you've just said. You say it's easier to skip marriage. I don't think you totally get it. And not everyone can do that. But there's some interesting things that he's drawing on here. And, and when he says this word eunuch, that obviously we don't use that word too much anymore, but he gives a list that gives us an idea of what that actually means. It's someone who cannot have relations with another person, and he gives three reasons why they can't. There's three different categories of person that falls, in, or that falls in this, under this term eunuch. The first has a medical dysfunction of some kind. They physically are unable to perform. The second is someone who is elevated, or who is in an elevated position in a king's court. They've been made a eunuch by men. And so typically what would happen is that there would be somebody who would serve in a king's court, typically as a servant to a queen or to the harem, let's say, and they would be forced to become celibate in order to take on that role. And so that's all I'm going to say about that. The third is that for the sake of the kingdom, they have sworn off marriage. It's not that they're physically unable. It's not that they've been made that by men, but they have sworn off marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And you should really kind of consider underlining that, particularly if you're single, for the sake of the kingdom. It has been given by God, in other words, for them to remain single or for them to swear off marriage, for them to remain celibate for the kingdom's sake. Now, this is a comparatively rare thing in first century Judaism to remain celibate. But they're staring at one of them right in front of them. Who's teaching them? Jesus is celibate all the way through to the end. Then we're also going to learn of one other that comes along who's perhaps the greatest missionary the world has ever known in the Apostle Paul. 
And to both, Jesus is giving us a lens that we can see that person. They're given the ability by God to not burn with desire and to abstain from marital relations, as Paul puts it. So he says, let the one who is able to receive it, receive this, receive it. So the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching on the severity of the marriage vow with what they think is a pretty preposterous idea. And Jesus doesn't actually back down. He increases the severity, if anything. He says, yeah, but there are only some that can actually do that. But yes, for the kingdom's sake, some will refuse even marriage. So in other words, the kingdom's value takes a higher priority than even marriage. But I want you to pick up on something that perhaps the disciples in the scene have missed. First, the reason for the Pharisees being so calloused towards divorce and marriage, for that matter, Jesus says is because of the hardness of their hearts. In other words, sin has so warped their minds that the notion of God's original plan for their life, for their marriage, seems preposterous. You can't possibly mean that. There's no way that could possibly be true. He not only, Jesus though, not only thinks that they can abide by this, He not only thinks that you can actually do this in your marriage, He's also going to tell them at the end of the book that they need to go teach all of His other disciples that will eventually come to Him the same thing. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, including what I've taught you about marriage. Jesus not only thinks it's okay for the apostles to understand this and to strive for this in their own marriages, but to also teach this about any other marriage that they would come across. To all of His disciples. That they would strive toward this as their ideal. The difference between the two crowds, Jesus' disciples on one end and the Pharisees who are hard-hearted on the other end is none other than the Spirit of God who is going to be put in their hearts to give them divine aid to strive toward the original goals of marriage. So marriages in Christ's kingdom are sustained by His Spirit. That's how they're able to strive toward that end. And it's not so preposterous. And so too are those who are called to be celibate. We often assume, I think many times in the church, that marriage is the norm. And maybe we should, to some extent, more people are going to get married than won't. And even Jesus seems to suggest that not everyone will remain celibate. And not everyone can remain celibate. However, one area we often have little teaching on in the church is lifelong singleness. Marriage is not, believe it or not, the only way to follow God. Marriage is not the only way to grow close to Jesus. Marriage is not the only way God has of refining a Christian. In fact, singleness 
is a refining in and of itself. So if you are not married, you need to understand that there is nothing deficient about you. There is nothing that you lack simply because you are single. Marriage is not the only way to follow God. In fact, some people may need to consider that it's possible that instead of continually searching for a lifelong spouse in hopes that you may have what your friends have, maybe God has set you aside for His purposes in singleness. It's certainly possible. And Jesus says to some, it's actually given. But what you need to also understand, and what Jesus reasserts here, just like to the married person who has the Spirit dwelling in them, who can now strive toward the ideals of the Garden of Eden, He also promises that the Spirit will sustain you in singleness. Because if He has set you aside for that purpose, He is going to see it through to the end. See, it isn't merely our view of marriage that Jesus is reforming. It's our view of God's kingdom. If we have a proper understanding of the righteousness required for God's people, and then the blessing of the Holy Spirit that He gives to us in that requirement, marriages will not only reform, but celibacy or lifelong singleness won't sound so crazy. Because we'll actually believe that there is a Spirit dwelling in us Because of God's grace, because of the blood of Christ, because of the covenant we are now a part of, there is a spirit dwelling in us that gives us aid to actually make it through life. For God's people, the standard of marriage, both for our own marriages and what we require of the marriages in our church, should be toward God's original intention. But I want us to think for just a second how this actually applies to us as a church body. There are people in this room, some are single, some are married, some have been divorced. And each one might be thinking, what do I do with this? So I want to take each one and just think about your life inside a church body and what Christ has actually done in giving you aid. The Spirit comes along and gives you aid, but Christ has also done something by putting you in a church body. To the singles, you don't need to be a silo. We see this in many churches. There will be pressure here. There has been pressure in the past questions have been asked of me and things like this. How do we reach singles? Don't we need a singles ministry? Don't we need to put singles in a place together so they might fellowship with one another? I don't necessarily think that's evil. I think it works against what the body actually is. And what the body does together and what the body as a whole can supply a person that is single even for life. And what kind of aid Christ has actually given to them in the body as a whole. You are integrated into the rest of the body. 
You're a part of everyone. You might not have kids of your own, but you are welcomed into the families of other people. So church body, it's not just for the single people to join along, it's for the church body who has families aplenty to open up your homes, to welcome them in, to exercise hospitality, to give them the supplement of what they would otherwise miss to help sustain them for the rest of their life, to give them true and lasting community. They're part of the whole body as a whole. The other thing sometimes that single people may miss is that in many cases they're in an advantaged position over married people. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, go read it sometime, that you as a single person actually have the ability to work because you don't have the obligation of a spouse. You don't have the obligation, the time commitments of a kid. So you do have the ability to work harder. You actually can outwork all of the married people in this room. No telling what the rewards on the other side of eternity actually look like for you as a single person in comparison to the married people in this room. Now to the married people. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, and I I suspect this question is bouncing around in, in more than a few minds. You don't understand what kind of pain I've been through in my marriage. You don't understand how really, truly difficult it is to get along with this person. You don't understand there's so much here. We need help. That's true. You probably do need help from the brothers and sisters around you. Consider what He has given to you in the church. He has given to you a group of people who are also married, many of them. Who can also speak into your life. But here's the reality that we got to get to before we get to anything else. Your marriage may be underneath rotten and you've paved over it. You've put bridges over it. You've done all these kinds of things and the bridges seem to be failing. And you know underneath is just rot and corrosion. But if you go back just one chapter in Matthew to chapter 18, Jesus tells you exactly where you need to start. Has someone sinned against you? Go to them and tell them their fault just between you and them alone. Sin needs to be dealt with. You need to sit down with your spouse, both of you, open up the Scriptures and say, this is what the Word says, and this is where sin has been in our marriage. We've got to deal with sin before we can deal with anything else. And both people in the marriage have to own up to where they've gone wrong. There's an old expression when it comes to marital counseling where you start is draw a circle around yourself and deal with everyone inside the circle, right? Often, often the goal is to take the circle and draw it around your spouse and deal with everyone inside the circle, right? No, no, no. Draw a circle around yourself, deal with everyone inside the circle. You've got sin that no doubt you've brought to the foreground. You need to own it, confess it, repent from it, ask for forgiveness from your spouse, other spouse needs to do the same. Before we can even go any further, we have to do that. And if the two are truly repentant over sin, then we can begin to build a healthy marriage. But if not, what does Jesus say? We'll bring a few more along. 
Now we bring the body in, right? To give counseling and aid. No, this really is sin. Jim, you need to confess to Jane that really is sin, what she's calling you out on. That's fair. Before we even go any further, it's got to start there. There are people who are divorced in this congregation. And perhaps repentance needs to be made. Perhaps as you thought back, you see the exceptions that Jesus gives here. You see the different things that Scripture points out. And and perhaps you're realizing there needs to be some repentance. Perhaps forgiveness needs to be given. Listen. The gospel is no different for you than it is for me. Sin is a reality in every single one of our hearts. We are all in the situation of the disciples, and we are all really in the situation of the Pharisees here. We are, every single one of us, looking at the same commands from Jesus and going, I don't like that. And if it's not this one, we'll look at other commands down the road and we'll go, I don't like that one either. Every single one of us are in the same place where we have all fallen. Every single one of us is guilty of an eternity in hell. But what is the gospel if it's not that you can be forgiven under the blood of Christ? So you have no sense in making excuses or trying to cover over it or trying to give a list of yeah buts. Own it. Confess it. Turn from it. Ask for forgiveness. And move on. Together, as a church body, we can strive toward this. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that if our marriages started to move in this direction, that people in the world would take notice? Do you think they would? I do. I think it would cause a lot of people to say, what are you doing? How can you do that? I know because I've seen it. I've seen adultery take place in marriages and the two actually come together in forgiveness and confession of sin and build a lifelong happy union. By confronting but actually believing the words of Scripture. I've seen it happen. And I've also seen the result of people on the outside going, how? How can you possibly do that? As it turns out, just like the very passage previous to this, those who have been forgiven much can forgive much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We pray for the kind of mercy and grace to be in our hearts that you have shown to us on the cross. How abundant is the mercy that you have given to us? How gracious you have been to us who are sinners. I pray that at the forefront of our minds, would be forgiveness for anyone 
that transgresses us. Perhaps most of all, our spouse. I pray, Father, more than anything, we would read your words of the promise of your spirit to dwell in our hearts to give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. For some to give to them the ability to endure singleness. I pray that we would believe it. Perhaps you would even raise up people in this very congregation who are dedicated to a lifetime of singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Pray that you would move in our hearts in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.